Surgical Society podcast. I'm Frank Davis, the president of the Surgical Society and host of this podcast. Throughout the year, I'm going to be talking to world-leading surgeons, incredible doctors with interesting passions, and the brightest and best medical students to help you score higher in your exams. Please follow our social media, cu underscore surgstock, and rate and download this podcast. But without further ado, let's get into today's episode. So I'm delighted today to be joined by the President of the Royal College of Surgeons, Neil Mortensen. We're actually recording live from the Royal College of uh, England uh, Celebration of Surgery in Wales Conference. It's a pleasure to have you here. Well, hi everybody and it's a pleasure for me to be talking to you today and explaining a little bit about my surgical life. Brilliant. So let's get um, straight into it. So tell me a little bit about uh, yourself. Let's start at medical school. So I was a medical school in Birmingham. Uh, I rode at school. I didn't really do very much work. I was lucky to get in. Uh, They were the only ones who would have me. Uh, But I was incredibly lucky because on my first day, I met the professor of surgery. He was assigned to me as my personal tutor for the six years. And that was, as far as my surgical career was concerned, absolutely brilliant because in our first long vac, he sent me and a colleague to... uh, Boston in the USA to Harvard Medical School and we spent the whole summer doing surgical research, operating, um, looking after animals after surgery, thinking about concepts around how to prolong transplantation uh, so that uh, you could move organs around the country and keep um, organ life going for longer. Wow, so you got your first taste of um, surgery over across the pond and, and you never looked back. I never looked back. I uh, also did a, um, I obviously did the rest of medical school in Birmingham. I did a, a term also in the United States in Minneapolis on a surgical service. And again, that completely confirmed my wish to do surgery. And what about then after medical school, you obviously became a surgeon. So can you talk to us about how that journey went? Sure. So um like many of us, uh, I, I had a, a, a very ambitious wife. She was in general practice. We moved from Birmingham to Bristol, where I took up uh, a post as anatomy teacher, anatomy demonstrator, which was the thing to do in those days. And by a massive stroke of luck, again, luck uh, plays a big part. Um, the chap who was running the anatomy department in University of Bristol Medical School needed to go to um, Dartmouth College in the US for a year and he said would you like to look after the anatomy department while I'm away and I said okay but I need to get something out of it mm-hmm. cut a long story short I looked for some endocrine cells in the gut and I had an MD within a year and a half so there I was uh, a couple of years out of medical school and uh, I already had an MD in the bag, so of course that made it really, really good in terms of getting into surgical training. Yeah, so it sounds like your career moved quite fast. Is that the case? It did. Um, so I was uh, an SHO for a little while in Bristol on the Bristol Surgical Rotation, very quickly became a registrar, uh, and then a senior registrar on the Southwest Rotation. So we went down to Exeter. I can remember my year in Exeter. I was in theatre virtually all day and all night for a whole year and unusually for me at the end of it I was sick of surgery because I'm completely otherwise addicted to it. And what type of um, surgery is it that you... Um, so um, I, I've always been interested in uh, in 
gut surgery, I guess. I did try orthopedics. I tried neurosurgery for a little while. I just liked the whole business of endoscopy, which was just developing then. Colonoscopy came in. I liked the opportunity to actually look down a scope and see what was there and see how it changed with disease. Uh, and of course, uh, as surgery has progressed over the last 25, 30 years, uh, our way of looking at surgery has not been with the naked eye in an open operation, but more and more increasingly endoscopic with robots and all the rest of it. So um, at first uh, in GI surgery, the big problem uh, in the 50s, 60s, 70s was um, uh, peptic ulcer disease. Uh, and I can remember in one particular uh, surgical department. Um, they were really interested in a new operation, a very special sort of vagotomy to cure uh, duodenal ulcer, and a drug came along and it completely wiped out the need for the surgery. So mm. I could see the writing on the wall, and I was already interested in lower GI disease, so basically it was colorectal surgery. And I was one of the people who um, made the specialty happen, I guess. At the time, it was part of general surgery. And clearly, to be good at something, you have to concentrate, you have to um, specialize. And so out of general surgery came a number of tribes, which is one of which is now colorectal surgery. You, know, you sit across from the table from me now as the, the president. At what point in your career did you think, right, you know, I'm going to go into or try and get a committee position on the Royal College of Surgeons? Did you ever envisage that future for yourself? Uh, I never planned it. Mm. Uh, Along the way, I was in positions of responsibility, president of the colorectal surgeons. I was also chairman of the British Journal of Surgery for a long time. I was editor of colorectal disease. I was a, um, a clinical director of half the hospital, Oxford University Hospitals Trust now um, for, for, for some time. So I'd taken um, management leadership positions. Um, I was always really, really interested in surgery mostly, mm. so it was uh, in a sense an afterthought when, towards the end of my career that I decided that maybe I should, in a sense, and it sounds a bit pie, put something back to try and help with um, the profession and its future. So um, in 2014 I got onto the Council of the College of Surgeons uh, and I helped run uh, for example, I, I, I ran the bulletin in the journals for the council for a bit because I had publishing experience. And then um, I became a vice president and then I thought, well, maybe I can, maybe I can do the presidency job. And I, ha I had absolutely no plan to do it at all. Mm. And uh, as things stand at the moment, the president is chosen from the council and um, it can be quite a competitive and, and rather difficult process. But uh, I came out on top in the most recent... Um, in the most recent election and of course it was a bizarre time for that to happen February 2020 and I was uh, um, the president from about April May completely coinciding with the onset of Covid. Yeah can you sort of tell us a little bit about um, sort of your role or or any sort of insights into the Covid-19 pandemic from the from the standpoint of the of RCS? Yeah sure so uh, it depends on who is in power in peacetime, let's say that's not when we've got a COVID uh, pandemic. Some governments have involved the Royal Colleges, physicians, surgeons and so on uh, in uh, both considering strategy and the implementation of strategy more than others. But clearly when the pandemic struck, um, they needed us. So we were all in the room in inverted commas, but it wasn't a physical room. Clearly it was now suddenly and amazingly all on Teams or Zoom. 
and uh, we'll all remember how quickly Teams and Zoom developed during that period. And um, I have to say, uh, to be on a team call with the Secretary of State, with the Chief Medical Officer, uh, with the uh, Medical Director of the NHS, on almost a twice weekly basis during the height of the pandemic was absolutely incredible because we could see before our eyes uh, all the problems. They needed us to be able to tell them what was happening. Uh, we, did, we needed them to brief us so that we could tell our membership what was happening too. Very, very interestingly, early on in the pandemic, it became clear that personal protection equipment, PPE, was a problem. Uh, and there was a, a degree of denial uh, in, in, in the sort of central leadership. And we were able to explain to them just exactly what the problem was. And that led to a change in supply lines and a better attitude towards the provision of PPE for all medical surgical staff, not just the people who were uh, looking after the really sick patients in critical care. So it was the most amazing time to be president from the point of view of seeing the national workings of a major health scare or major health problem, probably the, the worst major public health problem we've had for, for 50 to 100 years. You talk about having conversations there with people that I'm assuming like Chris Whitty, Matt Hancock. Can you sort of tell us about what those conversations were like? Were people, I don't know, angry, nervous? Um, was it tense? I mean, I think um, because nobody knew what was going to happen, it was clearly scary. And you could see the fright in their eyes, as it were. Um, I think there was a real spirit of collaboration. I think there was a feeling that this was something really big. Nobody knew where it was going. We had to somehow work together. Of course, governments always have a default, which is to try and protect the population and not tell the truth. And that happened again in COVID, I'm afraid. And we had to repeatedly say to our colleagues, you need to tell people like it is. You mustn't cover it up. And I think um, Chris Whitty and uh, Steve Powers in the English NHS were trying really, really hard to put that over to uh, the Cabinet Office and to the Prime Minister. Um, clearly, um, politics is a difficult business and trying to put over the facts, the science, uh, what would be good public health policy was difficult in a very, very, very difficult political environment when, as you'll all remember, there were those considerations over what lockdowns would mean in terms of companies and entertainment businesses and schools and all the other aspects of life might be like. Um, there was a very genuine concern at the heart of it that if hospitals were overwhelmed, they couldn't anymore treat conditions for which people could reasonably expect there to be hospital provision. If you'd had an RTA and the hospital was full, how could you have your fractures fixed? If you had a bleeding ulcer, how could that be stopped? If you had a cancer, how, you, how could you have an operation on it? There was a very genuine and real fear that hospitals would be completely overwhelmed. And it was that that really drove policy. Sure. And looking back now, do you think that the government did make the right calls. Obviously, you got the benefit of hindsight, but you know, are you proud of how the government acted, or actually, do you think you look? They actually ignored some advice we gave, and and I wish they hadn't. I think maybe things would have been different. Well, do you know there's an inquiry ongoing, and the true facts will come out. And I was on the edge, so I don't actually know 
exactly what the facts were. I think there probably was a delay in um, in, in in bringing in the, the the lockdowns in time. Maybe if that happened quicker, there wouldn't have been um, you know such consequences. There clearly was a problem over the provision of PPE. Uh, the stocks hadn't been properly checked. They weren't adequate. There was. Um, as as you as everybody will remember, there were um, quite extreme attempts made to find PP at short notice at great cost, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I, I think the full facts will come out in the inquiry. Um, I, as I as I've alluded to, uh, there was a tendency not to be completely honest and open with the public, um, but they were extraordinarily difficult times, and um, I think only with the benefit of kind of mature consideration will, will, will we be able to say well that really was just not acceptable or that was acceptable. And you mentioned some some of the, the names there and, and yourselves and those people did amazing jobs. When you see now that Matt Hancock has gone on I'm a celebrity get me out of here after seeing what you've been through you talked about how nervous you were about the hospitals getting overrun does that annoy you or do you just not really care? Uh, I don't. I mean, I don't care really. I mean, politics is a and it's extraordinary business. And uh, I mean, I'm a surgeon, and uh, you know, some people think surgeons are psychopaths. We, you know, we have this extraordinary capacity to, at the same time, be very, very empathetic and extremely cool. And we are, in a way, split personalities. I think there's a certain kind of person who goes into politics too. There are there is a pol- political personality which likes risk, which likes um, being the centre of attention, which likes a certain degree of narcissism. Um, though, though, you know, those are the political characters. Would we like more um, sober leadership? We would like more considered leadership. I think all medical folks would like to see a bit more of that. To be quite honest. I agree. And um, saying on on politics, the new Health Secretary Steve Barclay's in, the new Prime Minister uh, Rishi Sunak's in. Uh, Have you had conversations with them? Are are they positive? Or where do you see um, sort of the future of the NHS with them uh, in power? Well, I think um, obviously there were many changes across the summer. And uh, although we were at the Tory party conference in September and we spoke to the then representatives of the Department of Health and Social Care, There was a sort of planning blight because of the autumn statement. And although uh, I have written a letter to Steve Barclay saying we'd like to have a discussion about um, surgical recovery and so on, uh, there hasn't been any kind of um, reply as yet, but we'll keep trying. And uh, something, another sort of big thing that happened when you were the president of um, the RCS is the Kennedy Report. Can you tell our our listeners a little bit about that? Yeah, so so, um, when we... um, put our hat in the ring to become president. We write a side of A4, which is um, maybe too simple a method for the future. I think in the future we might have sort of videos of um, talking heads and all the rest of it. But at the moment, it's a sheet of A4. And on my sheet of A4 was we need to have a better deal for women and we need to have a better deal for ethnic minorities. Mm. So then the George Floyd episode happened in um, end of May, June 2020, uh, and I thought, well, unless the college takes this really, really seriously, we will be wrong-footed, we will be um, um, shown to be um, what many people perceive already as a sort of pale male, uh, older grey-haired establishment elite not really caring about the surgeons of the future. 
So I was very, very lucky. Uh, I knew about Helena Kennedy and I rang her up and I said, what do you think? Will you, can you help us out? And she put together a, a group of surgeons from all backgrounds, including Lord Ribeiro, our first um, black president of the College of Surgeons, uh, and many others across the spectrum of um, diversity. And uh, the Kennedy Report, uh, I remember seeing the draft in January 2021. Uh, it was a bit worrying, a bit concerning, a bit upsetting. Mm. I suppose we all knew, although we live rather siloed and protected existence, many of us, uh, we knew that things weren't right and that there were many of our colleagues who were having uh, a bad time very, very unreasonably. And Kennedy Report shone a light on that and came up with some recommendations to make it better. So um, cultural change in any organisation or within any profession is extremely difficult. Uh, things change slowly, but I think we put in place the building blocks to change, as we've been saying in our headlining, changing the face of surgery and making it a much more acceptable place for people of all backgrounds to feel comfortable as professionals. Absolutely. So you're confident that you know those changes will be enacted and and um, and it will be better for those for those people. I think it will. But I think we've got to be patient. I think uh, this sort of thing doesn't happen overnight. But already we can see that the complexion of the council, the College of Surgeons of England, is completely different already. Um, we've seen that uh, the representatives of many of our associations. Um, the specialist associations that's changing very rapidly so i think if you took a if you took a snapshot now you'd find the snapshot was very difficult from four or five years ago so we're definitely going in the right direction absolutely and when you read that kennedy report was it upsetting for you personally you know being the the figurehead the leader of an association of, of surgeons what, you know did very it upset you? very good question I felt very upset. I felt I'm trying to do my best. I'm trying to, as I've said, put something back. And this is written about me and the institution I love. But I got over that. Um, and uh, I guess what I, what I came to realise was that perception is really important. And part of the problem with perception is that we haven't really told anybody what we're really like. So the perception is of an elitist white male uh, establishment, uh, with a wine cellar and I've repeatedly told my colleagues we actually don't have a wine cellar and we don't just spend all our time you know drinking uh, fine dinners in London we actually get about we work incredibly hard I, I don't know whether everybody realizes but um, my three-year term is completely pro bono I get no money or, or remuneration for it I do it for the love of surgery and for the future of surgery and therefore yes I found it quite hard when I read those things and I think I'm spending quite a lot of time trying to encourage people to realise that it isn't like that anymore. And you talk about there about perception from a sort of medical student standpoint, focusing now on sort of training pathways and getting into there. I've heard things about that the surgical training pathways is, is really, really hard. It's really, not only is it hard to get into, but your work-life balance is, is awful. And yeah, coming to that perception, the perception of surgery is that it is, it's, it's not a great life. Is that something that you experience? Is, it, is that still the case? My children will all, would all say I was never there when they mm. were growing up. Uh, and I think the world has changed. And I think surgery's got to change to accommodate a different world and a different group of people wanting to do surgery. We have recognised that when medical students look at the surgical profession, maybe what they see isn't very attractive. And mm. that's not good because we need as many bright, able people as we can in the surgical profession. Um, I think that... Uh, we've recognised that uh, the training programme needs to be more flexible, 
needs to be less than full-time, there need to be better arrangements made for uh, our, our aspiring surgeons to help with their childcare, with their education, with their exam taking, and so on. We need to be kinder. I think in the past we've been competitively um, brutalist in a sense. You know, you want to be a surgeon, you've got to suck it up. I think we've got to be kind, we've got to be more thoughtful, we've got to be more sensitive, and we have a number of programs in place um, we have uh, a, a women uh, women uh, leadership program. We have just published a, a report on parents in surgery, which means both men and women and of uh, of all kinds of relationships. The whole business of trying somehow to get through that really, really tough part of surgical training where you're finding a partner, you're maybe having a family, you're trying to buy a house, you're doing your exams, you're trying to get your surgical experience. All of those things together make it extremely difficult to get on. But the prize is the unique, um, the unique gift, the unique possibility of being able to do what we do, which is a person comes to see you, you help discover what their problem is, you explain to them you have a solution, and you can actually personally provide that solution on a one-to-one -one basis in a unique relationship with somebody where the government has allowed you actually to almost take another human being apart and put them together again. Think what an enormous privilege that is. And with that comes both enormous responsibility, but also tremendous, tremendous gratification. The patient will say, thank you so much, you've changed my life. And I have to say, many of the politicians I've met are jealous of that. They say, we came into politics to change people's lives. And, the, and many of them find they can't in the way in which we can. I think it's, it is the most amazing gift to be able to do surgery and to be able to take it as your life's work and to be able to make that difference to many, many people during your lifetime. And you talk about that gift there, so absolutely so incredible. You also say that your children would say that they never saw you. Would you um, still go? Would you still do it again? Would you still, <laughs> uh, you know, be a surgeon again? Make that sacrifice for that gift? Well, they did see me a bit, of course. It's of a course, joke, yeah, a yeah. joke in the family, yeah. but it's probably a joke in many surgical families. Um, would I do it again? Oh, of course I'd mm. do it again. I probably wouldn't get in. I probably wouldn't be good <laughs> enough. Um, I think it, it looks so exciting. There are massive problems in the health service at the moment. It is understaffed. That puts tremendous pressure on everybody. Uh, you're, you're morally obliged to go the extra mile because nobody else is there to do it. You're personally compromised. You, your standards can be compromised because you might not be able to do things quite as well as you feel you should be. But all those things taken into account, nonetheless, we are needed. Uh, there aren't going to be any unemployed surgeons. We've got a huge task ahead of us with the backlog. And um, uh, I think with modern technology coming along too, it makes it a very exciting profession to be in. And I think the surgical profession will be a kinder place to be in terms of uh, that flexibility, that less than full-time working, that appreciation that we have a life outside surgery too. So I heard you speak this morning, you mentioned um, Mr Bevan who founded the NHS, his statue is, is only 10-15 minutes um, away from here. What do you think he'd say if, if he could see the NHS today? Well of course he, he was surprised when he uh, started the NHS how quickly it became overwhelmed by demand. Mm. So in one sense he might not be surprised at what he sees today. Um, I think he sees a lot of good things. Uh, um, tremendous uh, ingenuity, innovation, energy, 
Um, I think he might feel that maybe the health service was over-bureaucratized, okay. top-heavy, top um, top-down, um, too much decree from the center, not enough, um, uh, not enough um, uh, liberty to get on and innovate locally. Um, I think he'd probably understand our, our issues. Now, of course, the NHS was founded after the Second World War, when there had been a similar massive change in society, when there had been a similar complete disruption of the normal ways of doing things. And the NHS came in then uh, as a way of providing uh, uh, a health system for people recovering from another huge economic um, national crisis. So in, in some ways, the times are mirrored. And I guess what he would be unhappy to see would be um, a, a burgeoning of uh, independent care with people paying for themselves for treatment and so on, um, who maybe couldn't properly afford it. I think he felt very strongly that patients should be able to have uh, treatment uh, at the point of need, not necessarily whether or not they could pay for it. But again, maybe times have changed. Maybe there is time to look again at the funding model of the NHS and exactly how we run it and put it together because, again, this is an exceptional moment in our history and it could be a moment to say, well, it was a fantastic invention and it has been something we've all been very, very grateful for, but is it really working as well as it could be and is this not a moment to think about making it even better? So how would you change the NHS? How would I personally change mm. the NHS? Well, I'm speaking in a personal capacity, I'd have to of say, course, yeah. uh, rather than as a president of the College of Surgeons. These are not the, the views of the College of Surgeons. I mean, I've travelled widely around the world and I've seen different health systems. And I think the system they have in the United States is actually pretty cruel and brutal. And I wouldn't like to see that. On the other hand, the hybrid systems they have in Europe, where there is a combination of an insurance scheme and a national scheme, uh, and um, a little bit more upfront payment by patients for routine um, uh, consultations and so on. Uh, these are highly controversial measures. There are lots of people who would say if you bring in a if you bring in a hybrid um, uh, system, uh, there's going to be even more bureaucracy. It takes more time to work it out, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But actually, I think with um, electronic pay systems, with the way in which the world is changing in terms of organisation, electronic. Uh, information and so on, I think there would be a way of making a hybrid system work efficiently uh, and to everybody's benefit. Um, I'm only a humble jobbing surgeon. I'm not a health economist and I don't want anybody to take this as a, a particular view of the College of Surgeons or, 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 or any kind of um, expert view. I just feel maybe there's a moment when we could have a look at how we're doing it and make it better. What would you like for your for your legacy to be, or when you know you know retire, whether you do another term or not? What what do you want people to say? Oh, you know, I remember, you know, Neil Mortensen, he did this. <laughs> um, so we only have one term in oh, modern okay. times. Uh, three years is probably enough. <laughs> um, I'd have to say I. Uh, was slightly sceptical about people coming in and saying, you know, this is what I want to do, this is what my legacy should be, because um, we always remember the famous words of Harold Macmillan, events, dear boy. So what happens is you get to one of these positions and then stuff happens. And by God, by, by goodness, stuff yeah. has happened to me. So, you know, we've had COVID, we've rebuilt the College of Surgeons, and on my watch we've reopened it. Mm. That's been very difficult. Um 
we have had the whole surgical recovery argument and, and, and hubs and so on. So what would I say I was very, very pleased about? Number one, I feel pleased about the Kennedy Review and the way in which that's going to change the culture of surgery. Number two, I'm very pleased and honoured to have been the person who has been around with the opening of the new college building. Number three, I'm very, very pleased that we managed to persuade government for the first time in 25 years to increase surgical capacity with the notion of the surgical hub as a way of explaining that we need more facilities to do surgery well. So do you think that you'll hire um, more surgeons? Because there's, there's a competition ratios to get in are still really tricky and you said there'll be no unemployed surgeons. Is that something you're looking into at all? Um, I think there will be an increased demand for surgeons, and in the short term, um, and this is highly controversial, we, as I've said in, in, in other interviews, we can't grow surgeons on trees. It takes no. a while. Um, there are international medical graduates coming into the country with surgical qualifications who in the short term will be able to fill the gap. But, as we've always been repeatedly saying, there need to be more medical student numbers for our own homegrown graduates, and there need to be more places in formal surgical training for us to uh, increase the numbers. Urology has lots of, um, uh, lots of uh, vacant uh, placements, uh, ENT similarly, um, less so in some of the other specialties. Um, there clearly will be, with the increase in technology and so on, uh, a need for more surgical staff to help with the backlog. So um, there need to be two ways of filling the uh, the vacancies. I think we need to grow our own surgeons, but that's going to take a while. And we need to embrace our colleagues coming in from other countries and make them feel welcome in the surgical community too. Absolutely, because you mentioned there are more medical students. One criticism that has been put on that is that you're increasing the number of medical students, but then the actual training places aren't increasing um, to sort of get them so you get these wild sort of competition ratios. And then, of course, there's a bottleneck at consultancy level. But do you think that making more medical or creating more medical student places is, is the answer? I mean, creating more medical student places doesn't necessarily translate into more surgeons. No, no. Um, and um, in, in one sense, uh, it's good that a particular medical specialty is competitive provided that competition is fair and it does properly select the right people for that specialty. Um, we've all seen colleagues who've gone into a specialty who've been in it for a while and um, you know don't enjoy it very much which is you know which is tragic. So um, I think a better way of selection, a better way of, um, of, of encouraging people to find out whether they really are uh, surgeons at heart and whether they uh, whether they want to do it um, there will be inevitably um, uh, uh, an element of um, we have got to get this work done and we need pairs of hands to do it uh, and that demand will uh, will will drive supply um, I think there will never be a day when there is an exact correlation between the need uh, and or, or, or the need for surgeons or the need for op operating pairs of hands and the right workforce arrangements to put those numbers in place. I think that's going to be very difficult. One of the things we have been calling for all along is um, a statutory obligation on government to provide a workforce plan mm -hmm. so that as far as possible we can more clearly um, 
arrange for the right number of people to be in surgery for the right number of posts becoming available. But that kind of planning is very difficult. I mean, you'll probably know that, for example, in neurosurgery, um, there, are, there are a considerable number of surgeons who've been through the training program, and they are in excess of the demand for, um, uh, for consultant places in, um, in neurosurgery. So getting it right is really, really difficult. Well, that's been some fantastic insights. Something that we like to, to end on is to, is to ask our guests about a particularly interesting uh, case that they've been a part of or just something that's um, a case that's stuck with you throughout your life. So is there, is there something that comes to mind? Well, I'm going to tell you about a case when I was a senior registrar, uh, which is what we were called then, I guess, ST6 or 7, something like that, in the days when we were actually maybe rightly, maybe wrongly given a great deal of freedom of action and I was a senior registrar in Bristol and uh, I was operating with now a very dear friend uh, who was the uh, registrar with me. Uh, The consultants weren't around in town as we say Uh, and a patient in their early 30s with Crohn's disease had obstruction and needed to have surgery because the bowel was blocked and the patient was wheeled into the operating theatre and had an immediate cardiac arrest. The anaesthetist had an endotracheal tube down, it was in the right place, did all the right things, nothing seemed to be happening, patient was shocked, nothing happening. So um, without ever properly having been trained for it, I did a left thoracotomy, did open cardiac massage, we got the patient's hearts going, I put in a tube to drain the chest, I said to the anaesthetist after an interval and everybody going, oh my goodness, can we please operate on the abdomen? We won't do any joints or anything like that, but we just need to relieve the obstruction and bring out a stoma. And that's exactly what we did. And you know, that patient went home on day six post-operatively. And I shall remember that. I think everybody in theatre will remember that for the rest of their days. The most incredible opportunity to quite literally save somebody's life on the spur of the moment. Oh my goodness. And what an amazing advertisement to end on for surgery as well, because what an incredible story that is. It's been absolutely fantastic to talk to you today. Uh, You're a very interesting and certainly someone that I look up to. I'm very proud to be a member of the Royal College of Surgeons. So thank you very much for taking the time today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode with the Royal College of Surgeons President, Mr. Neil Mortensen. Tune in next week where I talk to Professor John Barry, a consultant bariatric surgeon and also the Director for Welsh Surgery within the Royal College of Surgeons of England.